Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 31st, 2016, and my guest is Doug Lamov, author, educator, and educational entrepreneur. He's a managing director at Uncommon Schools, the author of Teach Like a Champion, and his latest book written with Colleen Driggs and Erica Woolway is Reading Reconsidered, a Practical Guide to Rigorous Literacy Instruction. He was a guest on Econ Talk in December of 2013, where we talked about teaching, and today we're going to talk about reading. Doug, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Great to be back. And this book is written for teachers, but I found it of great interest as a parent, and I think Mm. for anyone who cares about education generally, and it deals with an issue we've talked about a lot on this program, which is mastery and grappling grappling deeply with something. Uh, I want to start with with reading. Why is reading so important in 2016? Yeah, we call it the first among equals, but obviously it's an important topic in and of itself in schools, but really uh, everything you study in school depends on your reading and your reading skills. The farther you go in education, the more, whether you're a behavioral economist or, uh, or you're a scientist or you study ancient religious history, uh, you're, you're required to develop your understanding of your field through the ability to read and learn from the discipline. And so not only is literature is English, it's its own important discipline, but all the other disciplines rely on it. And I would just say that it's under particular pressure uh, right now in its importance because it's being threatened by the device that's in uh, it's near it's within five feet of you right now is within five, five feet of me and is within five feet of all of our children right now, which is their cell phones. Uh, and so reading rates are going down among young people. And as reading becomes more and more important, it becomes more and more scarce. Now, you don't talk about that explicitly in the book uh, about this fall in the rate of reading. And it's something I think about a lot uh, as a parent of four children who are now 17 to 24 years old. And I've watched the temptations of um, screens get more intense for them relative to pages in in real books. Uh, where do you think uh, do you think anything good is headed that way? It's like a very bleak trend. Yeah, it's scary. You know, it's interesting you say we didn't mention it in the book. We didn't, uh, but it's just come up so consistently afterwards. It's really on everybody's mind. One of the things that I think is most common in response to the, the threat of screens is that people say, well, if kids don't want to read, we should make reading easier for them, and we should make sure that it's not, not too challenging and not too hard, and then they'll want to read more. And I think that there's a certain amount of it, there's a certain, certain something that's intuitive to that argument, but I think that Colleen and Eric and I see it very differently, and that if we want kids to read, um, giving them the best things to read, the things that have made reading uh, an incredible experience for generations, and that can't be replicated through any other interaction, and that challenge kids and make them feel like this is really something different, that's probably the way to inspire them. So we actually think, you know, rather than simplifying reading, making reading challenging and engaging is probably really important and making sure that kids are reading the best, best books that are out there. And finally, I think, you know, one other sort of old school phenomena, which is reading aloud, is really powerful. It's one of the ways that 
you as an adult, a parent, or an educator bring a text alive to students, but then hearing other people read it aloud makes reading a social phenomena. And maybe that's where I see the most hope, which is, uh, you know, staring at your cell phone is a relatively solipsistic, uh, uh, isolating pursuit. But, you know, stories began as ways to connect people. They began, you know, they, they started with the oral tradition, then they, be, then they were written down. But for a long time, you know, they've been ways that we connect with each other and talk to each other about things that matter. And uh, I think there's hope that uh, literature can, uh, or that reading can be a way to overcome the um, social isolationism, isolationism that comes with uh, device addiction. Well, it's funny you say that because to me, Reading is one of the great solitary pleasures of life mm-hmm. before screens mm-hmm. were invented. <laughs> and yeah, and it just uh, the ability to get lost, the way we get lost now in, on the internet is, um, but it's different with a book. I, I want to respond to your um, point about hard reading. And I do think that that theme runs through the book a great deal. Um, and, and it's, uh, I'm a big, I'm in big agreement with it. Isn't it interesting? And maybe it's me. I don't think it's me that I can't think of a great book that made was made into a better movie. <laughs> right? And that shouldn't yeah. be – you'd think that would be easy to do because you have the extra dimension of the visual story to tell. And you could – someone else's imagination presumably is better than mine. But something else is going on in the visual imagination. But, but something else is going on in the brain there. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean I always uh, – if there's a book that I love – the more I love the book, the more reticent I am to see the movie, uh, that I think it almost steals the personal interpretation from you, where you have to fight, fight to get the book back from someone else's interpretation. And there's something powerful about having your own uh, deeply held personal interpretation and visualization of a book. So I agree with you on the, on the topic of movies. Uh, you know, there probably have been some, there have been a couple of very good ones that, you know, that I, that I enjoy, but for the most part, I prefer the book, uh, so I'm with you on that. But there are two themes in the book, in your book, that I think are important that are that are easily confused, which are the two reasons I think we should encourage our children to read. Uh, one is it's a unique human experience. That's what you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other is it it's part of a cultural and political and romantic and spiritual conversation that we have with each other through books. It's about being, quote, educated, whatever that really means. And those two things are different, correct? And, and do you think schools should be trying to do both, more of one, more than the other? Well, I think that they're both important. I just think it's easier to overlook the latter, which is we forget how much power, connection, uh, understanding you get from culture, from knowledge in two ways. First, you know, I think there's just a lot of really good research coming out from cognitive scientists that suggests that, you know, knowledge is deeply, deeply important to learning. It, ironically, in the age of Google, when you can find people out there on the internet who say facts are irrelevant, you shouldn't, you know, you don't need to understand anything. We can, we can just Google it and look it up and, you know, in two seconds. But actually, at the same time, cognitive scientists are finding out that what you know and what's in your long-term memory uh, is deeply important, and it's really the only way around are being prisoners of working memory, that, uh, that knowledge really matters, but also so does cultural capital and what you know specifically and whether what you know situates you in part in, in the center of a larger conversation and marks you as someone who 
understands society and can and can uh, can weigh in on and understands its traditions. Well, that's really important. But the only way you'd really understand that is if you had been without that cultural capital. And so you think about uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with Ron Susskind's great book, The Hope in the Unseen, is a story of a young man from Anacostia and in Washington, D.C., who goes to Brown University and there's a sort of telling scene where he wanders through the bookstore and he's looking at titles by Freud and Marx and, uh, and he doesn't know who any of those people are. And so all those conversations where someone, said, where someone makes reference to them and makes reference to psychoanalysis and uh, Marxist interpretations, he's totally at a loss. And every time he's at a loss in one of those conversations, he's marked as an outsider and unable to participate in conversations that allow you to seek opportunity, participate in meritocracy. So I think the cultural capital is deeply important. And so, uh, you know, I think reading has become in this country, we've let it become the act of asking questions about a text and what text we're talking about is relatively unimportant, has become relatively unimportant. But actually we try and argue in the book that what you read is deeply, deeply important. You know, one of the examples we use is, you know, is, um, Oliver Twist and in does uh, 50 iterations of asking character motivation questions from Tuck Everlasting prepare you to be able to make character inferences about Oliver and Oliver Twist? And the answer we think is probably not. You probably need to have read some things that prepare you for that particular challenge. Yeah, Tuck Everlasting takes a little bit of a beating in the book. <laughs> not intentionally. It's a, lovely, it's a lovely book. It's sufficient. <laughs> but it's, you know, that story about about the kid from Anacostia, isn't it the case that that kind of meritocratic, whatever you want to call it, you could call it snobbish, um, informed knowledge is less important in 2016 than it was in 1920. In 1920 and in 1950, it was the way you showed I'm a member of the club. Yes. That club still exists. There's still a club of snobs who like to throw around delusions to fancy things. Uh, but they're less important, it feels like, that, that club mm-hmm. in terms of – maybe not in terms of shaping the world, but in terms of the actual knowledge. It, it, maybe it's just a signal. Yeah. That's a great question. The role of knowledge and the role of that club have certainly changed. Uh, you know, I think um, people would be a lot less unapologetic about their snobbishness today. But uh, – because it's a little bit more hidden and a little bit more subtle doesn't mean that it's still not there and you're being able to uh, reference the right books and know what people are talking about when they talk about them is still a part of culture. Uh, and in fact, you know, fortunately, uh, we're not, uh, we might not be as egregiously uh, snobbish or judgmental as we were 50, 75, 100 years ago, but um, but those judgments still happen, and the fact that they're deeper beneath the surface almost makes them more um, uh, harder to manage, harder to get around, a little bit more subversive. So, I've never seen Game of Thrones. Puts me in a small subset me of American. Either. Okay, we're both in trouble uh, <laughs> because when people make references to it, and John Cochran yeah. on a recent Econ Talk episode made a reference to a wall in Game of Thrones. I looked it up. I googled it. I found it. Oh, it's Game of Thrones. So there I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know uh, who Becky Sharp was. So it turns out she's a character in Vanity Fair by Thackeray. Uh, so today, for me, I'm in a small group. I don't know what Game of Thrones is. Hasn't Game of Thrones and other insider 
clever pieces of mm-hmm. cultural trivia replace Oliver Twist and, and other classics as the currency of who's paying attention and who isn't? Mm. And why is anyone listening to our conversation? We've never seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that when, you know, when I admit in public that I have no idea what Game of Thrones is, uh, people sort of laugh and say, ha ha, isn't that quaint? You know, here's this nearly 50 year old guy who, you know, doesn't know anything about Game of, Game of Thrones. And it's, um, uh, I think it's kind of funny and droll. I think it's very different when, you know, it may not be, it's not Thackeray, it's not Oliver Twist, but, um, you know, to not be able to discuss Darwin, uh, to not be able to, I mean, there, I think the cultural capital is still there. Uh, and there's, there's some cultural capital that's sort of pop cultural. And there's still, I think, a set of knowledge that marks you as a university graduate, someone who's part of the intellectual conversation, someone who, whose opinions can be respected and admired. Maybe not so much when we're, you know, uh, on the subway together laughing about Game of Thrones, but when you walk into a meeting, when you have a conversation, when, you're, when you find a reference to, when you make a reference to a text, I think those things still exist. Well, actually, I think Dickens is a lot like Game of Thrones now that I think about it. Uh, he was a popular serializer of his, of his day, and people right. tried to, they were excited and waited with great anticipation for the next episode, and they probably talked about it a lot over water coolers if they had any or whatever they had the equivalent of in uh, the 19th century. Uh, and he but, narrated the lives of people who, you know, previously weren't, you know, no one had ever imagined that they were worth telling the story correct. about, right? He was, he was edgy in its time. But what's interesting is that he was accessible in his time. In our time, he's not so accessible. And right. I want to raise the question. We're, we're still on the same topic, really. Um, when I was a kid, my dad wanted me to read Ivanhoe and Thackeray and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The White Company. And I tried very hard to read those books. I made my way through Vanity Fair. It wasn't easy. Uh, I'm sort of glad I did. But are these books like Dickens and Shakespeare just the equivalent of Ivanhoe? Are these things yeah. that we as a child, as children loved and, and, and enjoyed and profited from? And now today's generation, they're just not interested. So really, what's the yeah. loss? I think some are and some aren't. Let me, let me throw out some texts that I don't think are in that category. Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare is probably the exception. You know, we were, you were asking before about, like, is there still cultural capital? I think being able to catch, an, you know, allusions to an understanding of Shakespeare is still important. But let's take another text. What about the Declaration of Independence? There is a text that recedes farther and farther from us every year because of the archaic nature of its language. It gets harder and harder to read for well, first a 20th century and then a 21st century and soon a 22nd century reader. Uh, and so, you know, when we talk about old texts and texts that were have been important for centuries, uh, you know, things like the Declaration of Independence and the Origin of Species, how important is it to us that uh, citizens be able to read those texts directly and understand them and not rely on some inter- intermediary, some potentially manipulative intermediary to interpret those texts. And I would say it's pretty important uh, and hard to sustain democracy in a situation where only a minority of the citizens can actually read the founding documents. Yeah, I agree with that. But I guess I also agree that there's something worthwhile about Shakespeare that goes way beyond being able to know that neither a bar nor a lender bee is from Hamlet. <clears throat> You know, mm-hmm. I, I would argue, and maybe you don't agree, I would argue that the insights into human nature 
that Dickens illuminates or Shakespeare are, are what's important or 90% mm-hmm. of what's important. I mean, it's nice for cocktail parties and, um, but, but in general, it's worth reading because yeah. they're geniuses and, and they're well, geniuses that you can actually read. I mean, it'd be great to read Isaac Newton, um, right. but, but Shakespeare, actually, you can read. And he's, in, I mean, I would argue that he's endured for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not an accident of history that it was Shakespeare. You know, he, I think he was truly great. And it's hard to understand the tradition of, you know, even, uh, even something like, I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but I'd be willing to bet that there's some sort of an allusion to Shakespeare in that, yeah. that you know, like, uh, literature does not exist in a vacuum. It's constantly commenting on itself in the history of previous texts and it builds off, uh, it builds off its own knowledge. And so to really understand what's happening, even in a contemporary text, I think you need to have some, Knowledge of where those texts are coming from. So perhaps Ivanhoe fades into the fades into the distance, but I don't think that that means that you know all historic all all texts of historical import fade into the distance. And I think you know a good reading a good port, 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 portfolio of reading texts includes Shakespeare. Certainly, it includes some Dickens. Certainly, but it also includes modern texts and diverse texts and texts by diverse uh, diverse authors and coming out of diverse traditions. So this isn't really an argument, I think, for you know. The same, uh, the same canonical text that existed in 1920. It's just an argument for the fact that uh, we need to be able to access those texts, and that what we read matters uh, as much as how we read. That you know, the top, the the text that we have students read is not irrelevant, and reading is not some uh, set of fungible skills that can be learned and applied no matter what text you're reading. Yeah, that's really your point about learning to ask questions about the text is not shouldn't necessarily be the certainly not the only goal shy um but that that somehow seems to be the goal in many educational circles it's critical thinking whatever that yeah. is but it, it one of the things it appears to be is you know learning how to ask those questions and you're saying it's a lot more than that absolutely so one point you make and and it's well you make it a lot in the book is that this is hard and teachers mm-hmm. need certain strategies and skills to help students prepare to read difficult texts. And um, I couldn't agree with that more. There is a tension, I think, in modern American life and certainly in education toward making life easier. And that yeah. conflicts with this goal of grappling with difficult texts. Talk talk about close reading, the idea of yeah. close reading and how that relates to this. Yeah, I think close reading, maybe I'll start with why on close reading. I think it's such an important uh, it's the important thing to be able to do in a reading class. Close reading to me is the set of skills that you use when a text is outside your comfort zone, when it's above your comfort zone. And I would just like to, you know, take your listeners back to college or university, but to say particularly college, the first time you'd really been stretched when you were holed up alone with, you know, whatever that book was that was incredibly challenging to you. Uh, and you weren't sure you could make sense of it. It was really hard. Uh, to be successful in higher education and often, and most often in your professional life, if you, you know, is to be able to read things that are not easy, that are outside your comfort zone. Uh, and increasingly, you know, leveled text is winning the day in our schools. And the notion is, you know, this, uh, my kids get this advice often from their schools, read a, you know, read a page of the book. If there are more than five words, you aren't sure you understand, put it down. It's too hard for you. 
look, I'm sorry, but if, it's, uh, <laughs> if those are my kids <laughs> and that book, and that book is Slaughterhouse Five or that book is Oliver Twist or Pride and Prejudice or, you know, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, I say pick it up and struggle with it. And one, read a great text and two, understand what it means to struggle and how you struggle. And this is something that I think, you know, we have struggled as teachers to teach, which is how do you struggle with a book? What do you do when it's hard? We tell kids to reread, for example, but we don't always tell them how to reread and what different ways to reread are. And we tell them to look at the text, but we aren't necessarily as rigorous as we could be in, uh, in showing them what types of questions you ask when you're trying to, when you're first just trying to establish meaning and then to analyze meaning. And I think that part is super important as well, because the second, you know, I think the first reason is, so the first reason for close reading is it's so important for students to be able to struggle with things that are challenging. But we also focus a lot. The second reason is that we focus a lot on what I would call gist reading, which is we read something, we, we read a Shakespearean sonnet and we say something like, what is this sonnet about? Shakespeare is describing the fickle nature of love. Great. Now let's have a conversation about whether love is fickle. Yes. But understanding the gist of that sonnet and understanding each line of the sonnet and how it contributes to the meaning and uh, how meaning is made and all, and all the subtleties of the argument is very, very important. I mean, in a practical sense, if you're my, if you're my lawyer, I want you to understand more than, Hey, this is a document about the rights of citizens. I really need you to understand every line specifically what rights, when, how, and to whom. And if you're my doctor, I need you to understand a little bit more about, Hey, this is a doc. This is a document about, you know, uh, the importance of uh, glucose levels on <laughs> on uh, on blood on health, you know. So um, so understanding more than the gist is really important. Understanding how meaning is made and being able to deconstruct it is really important when you're, especially when you need to be able to struggle with the text. Uh, and so you know, close reading I think helps students overcome those challenges. That's but generally, you know, it, it's uh, we've been asked to do it by uh, the new SAT and by the Common Core. Um, but there's been very little guidance for teachers on how to do it. And so what's tended to happen has been they've continued to do what they've ordinarily done, and now they call it close reading. That's <laughs> yeah, not uncommon. What, what, are right. some of the, um, what are some of the ways that, that instructors or parents can help their children get through difficult yeah. passages or difficult sure. books? Obviously, a difficult passage is yeah. a starting place. You read it over again, then you keep going. And then you hope yeah. you, it wasn't too painful that you didn't know what it was. But if you really yeah. want to master it, what are some of the what are some of the tricks? Yeah, maybe I'll just throw I'll throw a couple of ideas at you for for what I think are really good a really good approach is to asking questions about text that we often overlook. And maybe the theme here is that oftentimes when we're talking about text, we ask what I would call telescope questions, which was we look at the stars and we go big picture. And so we're reading letter from Birmingham Jail, and uh, Dr. King says in that text. Uh, 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 injustice to any citizen is an affront to uh, to all. It's an affront to the justice to justice for all citizens, or is an affront to all citizens. Do you agree with that? Is he right? Right. That's a telescope question, and then that can be a very rigorous question. But it's not text dependent in the sense that I don't really have to understand the text fully to be able to answer it. In fact, there were many times in college. I only speak for me. I'm not speaking for you here, Russ. But there were many times in college. Specifically, maybe uh, John O'Neill's 19th, uh, 18th century English literature class where I did not do the reading, but I still was able to opine on the, you know, as soon as I realized this was a text about justice and, you know, I was able to jump in on sure. on those conversations, right? You can talk about things even when you can't create meaning directly from the text. Uh, 
so in place of telescope questions, like a lot of times you can ask what I would describe as a, micro, a microscope question. And oftentimes it's a very simple question like, who is he in that sentence? Sometimes it will be really unclear and what I want to teach students to do is how to, you know, how to build meaning up from its root layers. So maybe it starts with just a very simple pronoun question. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's a paraphrase question. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, in the book we talk about this very complex line uh, that uh, Scout says in, in To Kill a Mockingbird, where, you know, it basically takes all the themes of the book and they're written in this one line. And if I ask students about that line, they might, if I, if I just ask them to tell me about that line or to summarize the line, they might tell me about the part of the line that was most obvious to them or easiest to summarize. But actually, there are six or eight key ideas in the sentence. And in paraphrasing, I would ask a student to actually tell me, you know, uh, simplify, but tell me about you know, every aspect of the sentence so we, I, I know that they understand the whole thing. I'm not saying you only ask this type of question. Obviously, you know, this is a very like, forensic approach to reading, but it starts there, right? Lots of times we try and have big picture conversations with students about texts that they actually don't really understand what they're telling us and why, and they, and they haven't done a base level analysis on it. Uh, and so that's where, you know, that's where the meaning breaks down for them. So I need to be able to ask those types of questions and then rapidly go to more, more rigorous, broader questions. So, um, so those are very important questions. And then I think one other question that's really uh, maybe my favorite type of question that I learned from watching a teacher in Massachusetts is what I call a sensitivity analysis, which is one of the things that great readers have is they have an ear for text, right? They're reading and they instantly sense I have satire on my hands here. This is, a, this is an author who's, who's mocking his subject. How do you get an ear for language? One of the things that struck us is it's a little bit like having number sense in math. Is you, you, know, you, uh, you have enough exposure to variations and permutations that you have a sense for what, you know, what, cha what a change in the hundredth digit means in, an, in, uh, in a mathematical expression. And so uh, what this teacher does is a very simple thing. It's he he asks students to compare sentences from the text with very similar mirror sentences that have one or two very minor changes. So I might change a single word in the sentence and ask students, how does it sound different? So, um, a, so Colleen does a great example of this in our workshops. She talks about the opening passage of Grapes of Wrath, where Steinbeck's uh, he's describing a drought in Oklahoma, and he talks about the sharp sun striking down on the land. And she says, how would that be different if it said the bright sun shone down on the land, right? And the answer is, well, sharp and strike, that's something that weapons do, right? It shows you that the sun is attacking the land, that it's, uh, uh, that this is, this is a war between, uh, between heaven and earth. Uh, and so that introducing those subtle differences is a very powerful way of developing students' ear. Uh, you're basically isolating one variable and toggling it and playing with it and causing students to understand how very small changes uh, create shades of meaning uh, and cascade through a text. And so those types of very, uh, the microscope can be just as rigorous and interesting and demanding as the telescope. And those types of questions can be incredibly powerful in close reading. So I'm going to say something kind of, um, I'm going to say something snobbish perhaps, which is okay. uh, we're recording this in... October of 2016, and Bob Dylan just got the Nobel Prize for Literature. And yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge Dylan fan. He's a big part of my childhood. Yeah, I love his music. Um, it can make me cry. It gives me goosebumps. It can make me happy and dance. And he's great. And uh, he he's considered a poet. But my first thought on that award and thinking about integrating with what you just said is that 
not sure his lyrics bear close reading. Um, mm. They have an impact, which is special and different because it's tied to music. But he's not a craftsman in the sense that that Steinbeck was or the Cole Porter was even or, yeah. or Gershwin. And I don't know if that's just that I'm a 62-year-old curmudgeon now, which I, I can't bear to think. <laughs> I, literally, it's an unbearable thought. So I reject that immediately. But I do think what you're talking about is is the equivalent of a of a music appreciation class, but now with Dylan, with Beethoven mm-hmm. or Bach or um, Stravinsky. Uh, there, there's something complex going on that you're missing if you don't learn how to look below the surface that is not the case with The Who. I love The Who. Yeah. I yeah. love The Who. I love Pete Townsend. But it's, mm-hmm. And it speaks to a part of me, but – but great literature speaks to a different part of me, great poetry. You think that's a fair yeah. or assessment? I certainly think it's fair. It's fascinating. There's so many different aspects of your of your analysis there. As soon as you said, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan also. I'm actually, uh, I think he deserved the Nobel. I, as soon as I think about it, I think of um, Blind Willie McTell, which is my favorite Dylan song. Uh, and if you think about it, you know, you can listen along to it and get some sort of a story from it. But there's also, you know, I think the reason why people talk about Dylan being something different from most poets is, you know, that, that, that song, like many of his songs is so rich in symbolism about, you know, uh, it's a story about the American South, you know, and and the symbols of the American South and, uh, and the, the racial heritage of the American South are so, so rich and powerful in that song. Um, so, you know, I would say that it, uh, you know, it certainly, is exceptional among music because it bears close analysis. I would say that, you know, poetry is always a little bit challenging because poetry is to some degree always about what's, you know, the gaps and what's written. Uh, and it functions differently than prose. I do think it's important to be able to, you know, close reading functions differently with poetry yeah. uh, and prose. But I think that um, certainly that, you know, many of his songs fair, rich, and deep analysis. And if you really wanted to come to an understanding of his role in American society and why he matters and why people talk about him for the Nobel Prize, you would probably need to be able to unpack some of his, you know, some of his lines uh, when he says, you know, I mean, let's take a, even a very mundane line, the times they are changing. What times exactly is, was he talking about? You know, how did he perceive them to be changing? What is he referring, you know, what specific events is he referring to? You know, a hard rain is going to fall, uh, Fall on whom for what, uh, and you know what specifically is he alluding to? Oh, yeah, and, and he talks about a hard rain, so um, maybe that's kind of a t- maybe Dylan is a telling example. But we we can only really refer to it if he actually gets back to the Nobel Committee and accepts the <laughs> prize. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, rumor has he sort of has. I'm not sure, but um, <clears throat> we we've had Angela Duckworth on Econ Talk to discuss the idea of grit, which she's yeah. a big proponent of, and. The kind of close reading you're talking about certainly requires a great deal of perseverance. Um, yeah. It used to be called sitzfleisch, that you could just sit and struggle with some something rather than just close the book and move on to something else. What do yeah. you think of the, this whole idea of grit, and uh, what's its relevance, if any, for reading? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, I think there are so many characteristics, uh, personality characteristics, that often 
lead to success. Uh, you know, I think about it as a parent. Do I want my children to be gritty at times? Yes, I do. Do I want them to be compassionate at times? Yes, I do. Uh, do I want them to be understanding? Do I want them to be passionate? There are a lot of things I want them uh, to be to do. And a lot of it is setting dependent. Um, and so I think in many ways, the best way to teach those things, those characteristics are... Um, Rather than setting out to teach them directly and, you know, now I'm going to teach my children to have grit, uh, I'm just trying to think of what those lessons look like around the Lamoth household. They're not that successful. <laughs> but if, uh, but I think context dependent is actually the way that, you know, I want them to be um, uh, tenacious when they're reading and not give up. And if something's hard to stick with it, right, I think that is an important manifestation of grit. And in some ways, I think you learn those lessons more compellingly when they're, um, uh, embedded in one of the activities of your life and your, of your lives. So maybe, you know, maybe one of the benefits of close reading is it teaches students maybe not to be gritty across their entire lives, but gritty when appropriate, when reading a challenging text and how to, you know, how to summon both the skill and the desire to do it. I mean, one of the things that would make you stick with a text and want to slog through it is knowing that at the end of it, there will be great insights. And there'll be richness and depth. I think one of the ways that close reading, for example, can go wrong is if you try and close read a text that's not really worthy of deep analysis, then, you know, the rationale for the endeavor becomes questionable. And so when my kids struggle with a text for the first time, I want it to be a great text. Uh, you know, I read To Kill a Mockingbird aloud to them one, one summer, and I think... Um, they're having a very powerful experience with that text is one of the reasons why when they are faced with, uh, you know, more difficult texts in high school and in college, they will be willing to persevere. But it's both, a, it's, you know, it's a combination of skill and motivation. Uh, and then, uh, and so I think both the techniques are, are, there's both, there's both the opportunity for techniques of perseverance and grit and also motivation. Why would I want to? Well, because when I had this insight, when I was reading this book, there's nothing quite like the insight you get when you're reading a great piece of literature and all of a sudden you're struck by something that feels like truth. That's really lovely, uh, and it's certainly what I wish for my children. I have to confess that for myself, at the curmudgeonly age of 62 and the modern era of screens and digital life, I struggle to stay as persevered and not a word, probably gritty, mm -hmm. as as I was when I was younger because of these distractions. Do you find yeah. that a problem for yourself? And uh, if it's a problem for us, it must really be a problem for our for our kids, I think. Or maybe it's easy for them. Maybe they yeah. know how to multitask. Overwhelmingly, I find it a problem for me, and I think I'm sure that it's a problem for them. I just don't know that they have anything to compare it to to understand yeah. what a big problem it is. But you know, in writing this book, we spoke to several. Uh, professors, you know, at the university level and the college level. And I remember talking to one of my own, my own professors at Hamilton College where I went, and she talked about how differently students read now than in, quote, my generation, um, which is almost your generation, I would just add, uh, that, you know, reading used to be a reflective exercise of, you know, long and deep meditation with you alone with the book. And then increasingly for students, it's must, and it's constantly interrupted. It's constantly, uh, you know, there are constant breaks in their train of thought. Every 15 seconds, every 30 seconds, every, every minute, you know, there's data that the average person checks their cell phone every, you know, 120 times a day. I'm sure for young people, it's 10 times that. And so they have a different relationship with the text that 
reading has become a less meditative phenomena. And I even find that with myself, you know, I struggle to maintain my concentration because I don't maintain my concentration as consistently when I read. One of the things that helps me is I have to print it out. When I print it out, I read like I've always read and I'm much more diligent and dedicated and focused. And when I try and read on a screen, I'm constantly, um, I'm constantly interrupted. And actually there's a lot of research that suggests that people remember much better what they, you know, what they read much better when they read it in hard copy as opposed to in electronic form. And so, uh, you know, I think this is a constant, this is a constant challenge to maintain focus and concentration, but it's, I think what my experience is telling me is that it's a habit. It's a habit that I'm struggling to stay in shape with. And that certain, uh, if I do it in certain settings, I'm better at it. And so I think about the same for our kids, you know, building a habit of sustained focus, uh, and really, you know, diligently staying with the text is one of the ways that we socialize young people to be able to sustain focus and stay with the text. But I think a lot of parents, one of the first questions they ask about the school, their school is, is the school infused with technology? How will my kids have access to technology? <laughs> my concern, Russ, Russ yeah. is the opposite. If I could have anything from my school, it would be a place where my kids are, where my kids sustain their focus in conversation, in reading and writing without being interrupted for, for, by technology for as long as possible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I- I keep the Jewish Sabbath, which means that for 25 hours every week, I am screen free. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, real books from my past life and my current life, which I read yeah. during those 25 hours. It's a big time of reading, among many other things. But reading is part of my that 25 hours for me. And I, I do think there is some interest in that idea, a secular version of it. Because I think people do realize what's being lost by the uh, difficulties in focus and concentration. I have to say, I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference in the other six days of the week. I like to think it does. Yeah. But uh, at least that day, I'm more focused mm-hmm. on my, my family and my uh, and, and books in a different way than I am when I can check myself on those 120 or 10,000 times. Yeah. I'm thinking of trying that. Yeah. No, I recommend <laughs> it. <I don't, laughs> yeah. I've also started uh, meditating, which I found to be a very interesting way to maintain focus. And uh, it's, um, again, I, what you said I think is relevant. I think for people under the age of 30, I don't think they have anything to compare it to, and they don't feel like they've lost anything. For those of us who are older, it's um, the, the texture of daily life is so different yeah. uh, that I frequently miss the, the, the way it used to be. I think meditation is a really interesting comparison point because I, th- I think that's even the word I use to describe re- reading, was, which is yeah. med- meditative. That meditation is worth it and is, is a worthwhile experience to you in its own right. That is to say, when you're meditating, it's valuable to you. It's reflective, but that it also stays with you in some ways and influences your interactions with the world afterwards. And I think you know, I think you could argue that reading is really deep reading as a form has been a form of meditation. Uh, and part of the battle is to keep it that way and to sustain our focus <laughs> and be able to, you know, when are you most at risk for uh, checking your device when you're reading, when the reading gets hard, when it's challenging, when, <laughs> you know, when you lose, when you lose the thread. And some, so somehow I think this, you know, the skill of close reading is particularly important to be, you know, being able to really um, uh, to sustain your focus. Yeah. I, 
challenge I find often is I want to know what happens next if I'm reading an easy book. And so I'm reading ever more quickly. So I get yeah. back to my cell phone, which is a bad, really bad thought. Now, your book is is mainly about helping teachers, but of course, you have many thoughts on reading, not yep. just teaching reading. And I'd like to hear what your advice is for our listeners who still read. Uh, I get asked a lot, how do I read so many books? Because I read about 30 books a year for Econ Talk and a few more besides um, that are outside Econ Talk. And, and my old joke is, before I had kids, I read a book a week. Now that I have kids, I read a book at night, but it's uh, got a lot more pictures. <laughs> and so uh, I get asked, and my general answer, you know, the lessons I've learned as a reader are things like, it's okay not to finish a book. That took me a long, long time to be able to do that, to put a book down and not finish it. Not because it was hard, because it was not worthwhile. Yeah. Um, I didn't used to write in my books. They were pristine. I now write in them all the time because I'm older. I forget stuff, but also I realized even when I was younger, I wish I'd written stuff down. I'd remember it probably now better and certainly could go back to it. Um, I reread. I read some books more than once, uh, certainly many passages more than once. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on advice for readers. Yeah. Advice for readers personally or advice for parents, you know, for parents developing readers or both? Both. Yeah. It's great. It's a great question. I think a couple of things that you hit on, I think are really important. I, um, I think about reading and, you know, reading and memory. I think interactive reading, you know, being, uh, marking up a text as you read it is a way of interacting with it and saying, you know, underlining this, this thought is really important. Hmm, I want to remember that star on that page. That's powerful to me. I'm going to write a note to myself at the top of that. Hmm, I want to argue with the author here. I'm getting, you know, I think those are really powerful tools for making the text engaging. And I, I think it's really important, uh, that to me, you know, to me, a well-read book is one that's um, full of annotations, right? Uh, and that's one, that's one of the reasons why it's hard for me to read electronic texts, I think, because I can't annotate in the way that helps me. It's my habit of interacting with the text. And I would say that's also true for parents, which is, you know, I think that it's important for kids to, to develop that skill as they get older. Uh, and I would just say that reading with a pen or a pencil is very different from reading with a highlighter. Uh, and a uh, pen or pencil is much better. I think... Um, you know, one other, uh, you know, just one other thought about reading. Maybe this is mostly for parents, but maybe it's not. Is that I really, uh, Erica and Colleen and I are really passionate about reading aloud. Um, I just finished reading aloud to my, a book to my daughter. She's in second grade. And I read to her Island of the Blue Dolphins, which is, you know, most people would say it's a middle school book. It's Lexile as a thousand. So that puts it. It's sort explain, of like, what, explain what that is. Uh, Lexile is a, yeah, a measure of uh, text complexity, sentence length, and vocabulary. Uh, so uh, it's an imprecise tool, but a tool that educators would use to say, well, how, you know, what, at what grade level should you read this book in terms of your, you know, uh, how comprehensible is it to the average student at the average age? And so Lexile of a thousand would put this book at about a sixth grade level. So I read it to my second grade daughter, and I read it aloud to her. And I think um, I was doing a lot of things when I read that book aloud to her that I think were really important. And they make me really believe in reading aloud both to your children and maybe just reading aloud with, some, with someone else. But um, first of all, you know, she's had lots of experience reading books to herself that are perfectly nice books. 
you know, from Curious George to um, Magic Treehouse. But there is nothing that she can read to herself that is like the complexity and depth of the narrative of this, you know, Island of the Blue Dolphins, which is just truly a great novel. I loved it as an adult, never mind, you know, it being written at a middle school level. And so I think that I'm selling her on the act of reading books, great books, by reading something that's beyond anything that she's ever imagined a book can do. I think for the rest of her life, she'll be changed by the experience with that book. And then I think a big part of it is my reading it aloud to her and trying to breathe life into that text through the way that I read it. And so it's re it was really important. You know, I, I both read it mildly, dramatically, and tried to give voice to the characters in the setting, but also got really comfortable with her and read really slowly to her. So there were pauses where sometimes I'd pause and she'd just look at me and I'd look back at her and then I'd keep reading. And sometimes I would pause and she would look at me and she would say something like, you know, she must have been very scared or, you know, whatever it was that she was feeling at the time. And so I think reading aloud really uh, brings the story to life and lets people get in touch with the oral narrative tradition that's written in the heart of every story. And then just from a parenting perspective, you know, uh, here are some of the vocabulary words that were in the Island of the Blue Dolphins when I read it to my second grader. Um, glisten, befall, uh, pelt. Hmm. So when was the last time you used one of those words in conversation with your second grader? Wait, no, no. When was the last time you used one of those words in conversation at all? Sure. Possi possibly never. Right? Yeah. No, but not, not recently. And so the, the thing is that literature books are full of those words and they really only exist in writing. Their spoken language and written language are very different and the extent of vocabulary words is very different in those two forms of language. And so the only way to be exposed to those words that are so critical in that book is to have heard them read to you or have read them yourself, have read them yourself. And so from my perspective, you know, reading her Island of the Blue Dolphins, she's getting eight times as many vocabulary words, eight times as fast me reading to them, reading to her in this book and expressing you with a bit of expressive reading as she would be if she were reading Magic Treehouse. And so when she reads them on their on her own, you know, she'll have an immense head start in terms of vocabulary. Do you, do you, last, an, do you annotate yeah. as you go along? Would you stop and when say, when you read a passage, you know, she doesn't understand. Do you stop and explain yeah. it? Well, it's interesting. There were very few passages that she didn't understand. There are a few, and I would say, like, I would uh, explain it very briefly, but I didn't do a lot of, like, I didn't do a lot of questioning. I tried to leave pauses where she could react if she wanted to. I think I'd just like to let the story speak for itself. There were a few, I would say there were a few times where I'd explain a word or a phrase, you know, if I, was, if I really was confident that she didn't understand it. Because um, I, I would read Dick uh, Kipling to yeah. my kids a lot growing up. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I read an entire P.G. Woodhouse novel to one of my fairly old children, which was a glorious experience. Um, yeah. It made me appreciate Woodhouse much more and than I, I how important. I think it's so powerful. <laughs> I think what you just said is super interesting on so many levels. We stop reading aloud to kids when they get to like third grade, maybe. Yeah, I think but that's actually, a like, I read a lot. I, read a, I was reading aloud to my eighth grade daughter last night. Um, I still, I swear I'm going to win with my 10th grade son and he's going to let me read the Odyssey a lot. <laughs> um, Make sure you read well, the, um, the newer translation. What's his name? Um, I, I can, I can see it from here. One second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah read the Fagels, the Fagels translation. Okay. I've read that. I read that to my little kids actually, That's because great. it's so, um, if you make the right passage, it doesn't really start to finish. Yeah. 
But if you start with the uh, banquet hall scene, for example, if you tell some of the story and you, and you read the banquet hall scene or the Cyclops scene, I mean, it's as cinem- cinematic as anything That's so great. you could watch. It's just tremendous. So good. Well, I, I think the other thing that you said, you know, when you talked about reading uh, P.G. Wodehouse aloud is that it changed your appreciation of him. Yeah, for sure. That I think, you know, verbalizing it, it brings the story to life in a way that um, nothing else does. And it also reminds me of why, you know, I, if my daughter had read it to herself, there would have been lots of passages that she didn't quite follow. But in addition to breathing the story to life, you know, when I read it to her, I was able to kind of model for her what the syntax of a very yeah, complex yeah, sentence sounds voice, like. For sure. Well, I think, so I think that there's a hidden form of vocabulary for kids when they're reading, and it's sentence, it's syntax complexity. When you ask kids, you know, about a difficult passage, oftentimes they got one of the ideas within a sentence, but they didn't, the sentence was, you know, incredibly com- complex and multifaceted. And so they didn't understand how all the ideas in the sentence connected. And there's just, you know, there's too much syntactic complexity for them. Yep. And so if the first time you've encountered a book with synta- with really rich syntactic complexity, like you'd see in Dickens or in Wodehouse, or even in Island of the Blue Dolphin, is when you're in sixth grade, you've probably lost the game already. So the key to me is that my daughter, you know, I was reading her a variety of ornate sentences that are, you know, probably more advanced than most adults use in their everyday work life. You know, hundreds of them, thousands of them in a row as a second grader. Um, but also by, and then by expressing them, I helped her to understand what they sounded like, which is why I think there were comparatively few moments of lack of understanding. But also that's like, I think, one of the powers of reading aloud. So if I could say to parents, you know, do anything with your kids, I would say one, read aloud to them, and two, read aloud to them difficult, you know, exciting, wonderful, but difficult texts that are above their ability to read on their own. So you give them, you know, great stories and great vocabulary and great syntax above their, in advance of their ability to read it themselves. And then to the degree that you can make oral reading a part of your life, you have another adult you'd enjoy reading with, you have an older child you'd enjoy reading. I can't tell you how much I loved having a book to read aloud to my older kids, you know, every summer, the summer we read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird aloud to each other. And that was like, that was an incredible experience. So, um, you know, I think there's a, that's where text started. And I think it's a really powerful, uh, it's a really powerful experience uh, for young readers and potentially for older readers as well. I love the idea of reading something difficult because I think a younger child, and not a, again, not a five-year-old or a four-year-old, but a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old, understands that you're opening the door to something magical. Yeah. And the fact that they don't understand every word is is not a bad thing because they know that oh, my dad understands it probably. He may not yeah. actually, but they they assume that we do, and they think someday I'm gonna I'm gonna read that myself and I'll understand it more than I do now. And that. Yeah. Anticipation and it's, it's such a gift. Yeah, it's such a yeah. gift. I interrupted you. I don't know if you remember what that. Th- you were to say something else too about reading advice. There was a, there was I guess a third one thing. other thing is I, I think that there's such a powerful connection between fiction and nonfiction, and between knowledge and reading. You know, there's a lot of I was talking about you know, research of cognitive scientists, but there's been a lot of fascinating research that suggests that, you know we assume that reading is a skill, that inferencing, for example, is a, making inferences is a skill. But I think there are a lot of cognitive scientists who have questioned that and that, you know, what they find is that your background knowledge about a topic correlates to how well you're able to comprehend it. Or another way of thinking that about that is how deeply you comprehend it. And so if I wanted to enrich my reading experience, 
I would combine my reading of a novel with my reading of short nonfiction pieces to enrich that novel. And maybe I would just start by describing how would this might work in a school setting and then how I've applied it with my kids and even with myself. So um, I was watching a teacher teach a, a book as a fourth grade novel called Lily's Crossing. It's set in New York City during World War II. And there are all these allusions to things that fourth grade kids in the 21st century know nothing about, victory gardens and rationing and blackout curtains. And instead of just like explaining them or glossing over them, this teacher would, st- would have, you know, for 20 minutes of class every three or four days, they would read an article about one of these things. So they read an article about rationing and what sorts of things are rationed and why. And the interesting thing is, you know, nonfiction is really hard to read. And in your elementary school and middle school and high school years, you read comparatively little of it, and then you show up at university and and all of a sudden 80 to 90% of what you read is nonfiction. So one of the key things, you know, the new SAT and the Common Core, uh, despite all the political flux about them, you know, there's a core idea in there that's very good, which is read more nonfiction, it's really important pushing us to do that. And I think that they're right. But, you know, reading nonfiction is hard and often is a disconnected experience for kids. But the kids in this classroom, they had just been reading about this character, Lily, in the book who experienced rationing. And so all of a sudden they were kind of interested in rationing and they read the nonfiction uh, with interest, right? There was a, they, they understood why they were reading that article and that made them interested in it in a it's way a that, you know, when, the, when I was an English teacher, the way that we approached teaching nonfiction was we would do a nonfiction unit and we would select, we'd take a selection of articles and we would attack them from a, you know, a formalistic standpoint that was almost French. You know, we'd be like, today we'll look at the subheadings and understand why the subheading, you know, today we'll look at the organizational patterns of, you know, and one day it would be the naked mole rat and the next day it would be the American Revolution. And, you know, kids were constantly disconnected from these texts and had no idea, you know, why would I be doing this if a teacher wasn't causing me to? But this teacher was so brilliant, right? So here's someone you care about. Here's what they're experiencing. Let's read an article on that. Now, all of a sudden, we know about rationing. And then every other time there was a reference to rationing in the book, their level of knowledge was dramatically increased. And so they understood more of the novel. They were, you know, the illusions, the hints, the subtle, uh, you know, uh, um, the subtle implications of the novel about hardship and scarcity, all of a sudden they were picking up on them. And then they read an article on victory gardens and blackout curtains. And so they read a lot of nonfiction, but it was engaged and enveloped in this narrative of the fiction itself. And that made them comprehend more depth in both texts. So it's kind of, there's kind of this synergistic relationship. Yeah, and so I started doing that with, thank you. So I, I thought this was a brilliant idea. Yeah. So I started applying it with my own kids. You know, when I read aloud to them, uh, we stop when there's something interesting and we read a short article on it and we find out a little bit about it. You know, I was reading a book about that takes place in 12th century Korea. It's a beautiful novel called a single shard with my daughter. And we stopped and we read about kilns and celadon pottery. And, uh, and so she's starting to understand why nonfiction exists and to get an ear for nonfiction and what it sounds like and to even want to look things up. Uh, and her experience with that novel was enriched and, and made deeper. And I think that, again, like, I think we've given short shrift for the power of knowledge and how important knowledge is uh, in understanding and in reading. And so I think you could even, you know, if you did this intentionally as an adult, you would enrich your own experience if you stopped and not just looked up words, but looked up ideas by reading a little bit about them, about them as you're reading. Many of us do this. You would increase your context 
your knowledge about the things that the were the, the events that were happening in the book, and you would probably take twice as much away from it. But it'd also be kind of a fascinating and engaging and enriched experience. So I don't see any reason why you couldn't apply that in your in your your personal reading life as well. That's great advice. Now you're part of Uncommon Schools. We talked about them in uh, the last time we talked in 2013. Yeah. Uh, remind listeners what the Uncommon Schools project's about, and uh, give us an update on how you're doing. Thanks. Uh, we are a nonprofit, and we run 49 schools in uh, impoverished communities around the Northeast: uh, Camden, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, Brooklyn, Boston. Uh, Rochester and a couple of other places in upstate New York, generally in communities where, you know, 90% of kids grow up in poverty and, you know, a handful of kids, you know, very few kids graduate high school and a handful of kids go on to college. And the idea is we want to build schools where everyone goes to college and everyone is prepared to succeed in college. Uh, And, you know, that sort of led to my work because the question is, what do you have to, you know, you have to engineer every decision and every interaction to be as productive and as positive as possible to have that, that happen. So we have 49 schools. Uh, they're doing, they're doing really well with great teachers and great school leaders. And, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, basically 100% of our kids who graduate from our high schools go on to college. Uh, they've been successful there at a much higher rate than the, uh, and, you know, you would predict we still have a long way to go to making sure that every kid who gets into college persists and stays in college. Uh, and, you know, on the me- on the traditional measures of, you know, state test scores and things like that, you know, um, we've been able to dramatically outperform expectations of, uh, that, you know, you'd have for kids of poverty. And, you know, one recent study uh, noted that several years in one of our schools basically eliminated the effects, you know, socioeconomic effects of poverty. So, um, you know, through the diligent work, you know, uh, diligent hard work of everyday teachers just trying to be a little bit better every day just shows you, you know, what a powerful thing a great teacher, a great classroom, a really intentional education can be. And I think that's where we come from with this book, Reading Reconsidered, and, and my other book, uh, Teach Like a Champion, which is we want to derive our knowledge from what great teachers actually do <clears throat> and that we want to honor teachers by studying what they do and learning from them the best among best among teachers, you know, professions that have stature and status, the practitioners of that profession participate in building the knowledge base of the profession. Um, doctors participate in building, you know, building the knowledge base among doctors sure. of medicine. And, and to me, that's a big part of building the stature of the teaching profession is honoring, finding the best teachers, honoring them. Uh, by studying what they do and saying we want to learn from what you do and share it with people around you. And so that's kind of the principle behind these books and to the degree that there are useful ideas in them, like embedding nonfiction. They all come from great, uh, you know, great practitioners on the front line. And what kind of, how would you describe the, these schools, public, private, charter? They're charter, they're public charter schools. Uh, and so, you know, kids come to us by lottery, uh, you know, there's uh, this incredible demand for school choice uh, in American cities. The school systems are not where they need to be. Uh, they're you know, they're great charter schools, they're great district schools, but the number of seats in great schools is sorely lacking. So uh, there tends to be there tend to be a lot of applications for for our schools. And we, when we have more applications and we have seats, we choose kids by you know kids by lottery, kids at random. Um, but they're public school kids, and they come to us and they work hard, and we try and prove that the outcomes can be different. And in five years, how many schools will there be? 
They're 49 now. What do you expect there to be in five years? That's a great question. We hope to keep growing. Uh, we want to make sure that every school we run is really great and is, does right by every family that enrolls their kids. Uh, so if I had to say, you know, maybe in five years we'd be at 60 or so, you know, uh, there are lots of people telling who will tell you when you start being successful at something to grow exponentially. And maybe there's some, uh, some fields where that, Don't that can work. To them. Fools. Yeah. I think I've seen more, I've seen more than one good idea in the education sector broken by, uh, by trying to grow it too fast. So we are trying really hard to make sure we're careful and considered in our rate of growth. Are you influencing uh, non-charter schools through your books? That's probably the most exciting aspect of the work that I do. You know, I do full-time teacher training. And what I do in my living, I think I have the best job in the world. I study teachers at work in their classrooms, and then I write about it and share about it in books and do training on it. And over time, you know, I, I just think that inc- educators are incredible people in this country. They do incredibly hard work, often under tough conditions. You know, people don't generally cry or scream at you in, in, your, in your daily work. Well, maybe you, there's a lot I don't know about your daily working life, Russ, but generally I don't yeah. think that they, they do. But, you know, teachers do really maybe the most important work in our economy under really difficult conditions, uh, knowing that they won't be compensated as well as they might be in other fields. And they do. They do great, great work at it. And they, you know, they're just good, they're good people. And increasingly as we do this work, you know, they, um, they've been really receptive to looking at this work and thinking about how we teach, how we teach better and what the decisions we are that we, we make in the course of teaching are. And so our workshops are increasingly, you know, they're 50% charter schools and 50% district schools. And that makes us really happy that, you know, when you, when you have, when you have, things that are helpful to teachers. Most of them don't really care where the idea comes from. They just, they just want things that work sure. and work for kids. And so I do think there are great opportunities uh, to bridge what some people <laughs> believe to be a divide. You know, for us, uh, you know, any child who's in a classroom that is better uh, is a victory. And any kid who's in a classroom that, uh, that isn't is a loss. So you know, we don't particularly care whether and we want all classrooms to be better everywhere in every type of school. And we've been struck by how overwhelmingly most teachers believe that and are positive about that. And you can hear people shouting about, you know, charter versus district or this versus that. But I think they're, they're just the minority of people. And most people just want to focus on getting better for kids as much as they can. And that's one of the great things about the teaching profession. My guest today has been Doug Lamov. Doug, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.